0: This project has taught me so much. I've always wanted to learn about the treaties, and this was the perfect catalyst. The story began with a single email. From there, I read the details of the exhibit that they were searching for artists to contribute to. And... In that abstract as well as the approach of the email this whole journey began and the, the seeds were planted <laughs> and now a name that I had no knowledge of prior to this moment will now be a name that I most likely will never forget and although I'm only beginning the journey and understanding the gravity of the treaties signed between the United States and the Nimipu, the Nespers people. It is powerful and already having just started <laughs> taking the first steps, really. You know, I recognize that it's going to be a journey and that it'll take time and further research and greater understanding to really grasp all that these documents hold and all the ways that they have affected the world that I live in today. And even with that seemingly insurmountable task before me, I'm so very grateful for... These first steps. Reading through the documents. Doing a baseline bit of research around those who formed the documents. Around those who were there to benefit. It's been quite a journey. And... I think the biggest thing is really just understanding that not everyone has the opportunity to really sit and synthesize this information. And so it started off really just for me to get the things out, just read through the text, get it out. And then I started to understand that it's not just about me. There are so many others within my family and within my community who most likely have never read these documents. And even if people have read the documents, that doesn't mean that the content was broken down or discussed in a way that would help them to synthesize the information. Immediately, I'm transported to just two years back. When one of my eldest uncles was writing a letter to petition a court on behalf of another family member. And the person in the house who would most likely edit that letter wasn't there and asked me to do it instead. In reading through the letter, I had the absolute hardest time working to understand everything that my uncle was trying to express in his words the message was there the feeling was there yet it was disjointed and grammatically incorrect and so many other features and it broke my heart reading that letter in that moment because I know that my uncle did his best to write as clearly as he could. He did his best to put powerful words together, to speak on the behalf of a family member that he loves, and yet instill and the final product most likely would not do justice to the intent behind the work. In a court of law. It broke my heart. And as I was transposing this letter from what he had handwritten into an electronic document. That could be emailed and printed out. It was such a challenge. One, as I mentioned, just getting through the grammar and the disjointedness and then understanding where can I put my voice in here to help strengthen some of these words or some of these statements that my uncle is trying to make. And so that story, that experience, really stood out to me as I started reading these treaties aloud because there is such thick language throughout each one of the paragraphs. Many of the paragraphs themselves are a single sentence that are stretched out. Hundreds of words lined together. And I think about even the exercise of speaking the words aloud. This is most likely the same way that my forefathers the people who have their signatures on the Treaty of 1855. This is most likely the way that they received the information. I don't think they got an individual stapled copy with highlighters, as well as a nightstand uh, to read at night and a suitable workspace. Reading another language, that's a luxury that I had, was to really sit with the document and read through it at my own pace, to use pens and highlighters to mark out sections to help me guide and understand the different premises and clauses included in all the thick language. Speaking the words out loud, reading through the text, felt as though I was throwing out those same spells, (laughs) those same incantations as was thrown out centuries ago, essentially. (sighs) It felt strange thinking about that. Thinking about my forefathers being presented with this information by somebody verbally throwing these words at them. And at what cadence? And at what volume? Was there an allowance for questions? You know, mitigating the tension And by tension, you know, again, that's one of the many, many oversimplifications of, of, this, of, of the entire experience, of, of history. People were imprisoned at these treaty signings, at these councils, places where people came to speak peaceably people were imprisoned and threatened with their lives. And there's always talk to about the use of alcohol. When you really sit and you think about all of those barriers, it really shows you that there was not a space for open dialogue, for honesty, and for true negotiation and we see it play out throughout all the research that I cover and we still see it play out today, sadly. The Treaty of 1855 and the Treaty of 1863 only scratched the surface. Of everything that is playing out today. And to give people in my family and in my community at least a little bit of access to that information means the world. Having the opportunity to really just sit and simplify the words, pare them down to the small statements to at least give everyday people, the people that I love, the people that have raised me, the opportunity to understand just a little bit more paramount and that's what this project really became and so yes it's all raw it's all unedited however it's an opportunity to allow for yourself to just sit and listen to research by no means am I fully correct in everything nor do I claim to be I'm no expert in anything and a lot of things can be very, very, very extremely pared down or as I may say, oversimplified because there's a lot of depth and level to this history. And this singular project has really helped to show that. And so this is my invitation to any and all to sit and listen to a little bit of notes about the establishment of the Washington Territory, about the United States' interactions with the native and natural habit- inhabitants of The land. It's also a journey into Nespers culture and society and mindset and ideology, Um, at least planting the seeds of these concepts and of these thoughts and of these conversations. I'm excited to share this. (laughs) Really, I'm excited to share. And again, um, this is only my research. This is only what I found. And this is only my interpretation. I know that much is flawed. I know that much can be further explored to really understand the true depth of it. And at the exact same time, I'm simply looking forward to again sharing a resource for others to possibly engage in their own research and their own study and understanding of Nimipu history. So basically, this whole thing boils down to researching the treaties of 1855 and 1863, where the United States government entered into agreement with the Nez Perce people. For the quickest rundown, going to the National Park Service website at www.nps.gov, you can find a quick rundown on the treaty period as well as a little bit of a timeline about the treaties themselves. And so as a precursor to everything that I go through in my notes, I will read through these few pages here on the National Park Service's website, again, you can find this for yourself, nps.gov, and I'm reading the treaty period under the nespers area, and it reads, the treaty era for the Nimipu, nespers began in 1846 when Great Britain and the United States settled a long-running disagreement over settlement and control of what was then known as Oregon Country. With the settlement of this dispute, settlers going overland on the Oregon Trail began to pour into the region. The creation of the Oregon Territory in 1848 and Washington in 1853 triggered the treaty process. In 1855, Territorial Governor Isaac Stevens met with representatives from the Umatilla, Yakima, Nez Perce, Cayuse, and Palouse. After more than a week of tense negotiations, the Nimipu agreed to cede 7. million acres of tribal land while still retaining the right to hunt and fish in their, quote, usual and accustomed places, end quote. The Treaty of 1855 was ratified by the U.S. Senate in 1853. In 1860, gold was discovered within the boundaries of the reservation. Rather than stop the newcomers from trespassing on reservation land, The U.S. government instead initiated another treaty council that would shrink the 1855 reservation by 90%, claiming over 5 million acres. The bands that lived outside of the proposed reservation boundaries walked out on the proceedings and refused to endorse this land grab. Nevertheless, 51 headmen who lived within the proposed reservation boundaries affixed their marks to the new treaty the U.S. Senate ratified the document in 1867. The 1863 Treaty became known amongst Nimipu as the, quote, Thief Treaty, end quote, and or Steel Treaty, and created the conditions that would eventually lead to the armed clash between the Nespers and the U.S. Army, now known as the Nespers Flight of 1877. And so following the trail into 1855, by 1855, the Nimipu nespers had already been decades had already seen decades of enormous change. From fur traders to missionaries to settlers who seemed more numerous by the day, outsiders had brought in new customs, products, religions, and ideas. The tribe's leaders reasoned that since the steamrolling of their traditional lifestyle seemed inevitable, it would be in their best interest to reason with the white people on their own terms the nimipu feared that if an agreement with the government was not made their lands would be taken away and they would get nothing in exchange when general isaac stevens who was also the first governor of washington state arrived in 1855 eager to acquire land on which to build a transcontinental railway the nimipu were ready to set the terms up for of a fair agreement the council lasted more than a week and several thousand Indians were present, including almost all of Nez Perce Nation and the Walla Wallas, Cayuses, Umatillas, Yakimas, and representatives of several other tribes. Eventually they reached a reluctant treaty. The only land the Nimipu would have to cede was seven point million acres, all of it in border areas. Important ancestral sites were included within the reservation. All traditional Nimipu hunting, fishing, and gathering activities would also be allowed to continue indefinitely, even outside the boundaries of their new reservation. In exchange for this trade, the U.S. government agreed to supply the Nimipu with two schools equipped with two teachers as well as furniture, books, and stationery, two blacksmith shops, a tin shop, a gun shop, a carpenter shop, a wagon and plowmaker shop, a sawmill, a flour mill, 10 people to work at and maintain the above-mentioned buildings for 20 years, a hospital stocked with medicines and a trained physician, $200,000, almost $6 million in today's money. Each clan's headman and or chief would also receive a house and a stipend of $500, $500 a year, about $15,000 today for the period of 20 years. The idea of most of these provisions was that within 20 years, the tribe would learn the skills necessary to thrive in the new American world while still retaining the most important aspects of their own culture. No whites besides the above-mentioned employees and the Indian agent would be allowed on the reservation without the consent of the tribal leaders. In 1855, Excuse me. The Treaty of eighteen the eighteen fifty five treaty was an agreement between sovereign nations. Since all fifty six Perce tribes had input on and signed the resulting treaty, it became their basic document in dealings with the US government and legally can still be recognized as such today. Never again was a treaty made that all Nimipu agreed to. So what happened next? This leads us to the aftermath of the 1855 Treaty, where soon after the 1855 Treaty was signed, but before the Nemeepu or other tribes had received any of their promised payments or materials, General Stevens declared the ceded land open for settlement, and miners and land hunters started to pour into the area. The rough-and-tumble newcomers had little interest in obeying the sovereign property lines of the reservations. Many of them also thought nothing of pillaging and killing Indians. Cruel anti-Indian stereotypes were common at the time. For several tribes, including the Yakimas, Spokans, Coeur d'Alenes, and Pelousas, the influx of aggressive and disrespectful white people was an unforgivable betrayal of the terms of their treaty and they retaliated attacks. Soon, the U.S. military responded. The Nimipu, however, Still thought that they needed to be allies with the Americans to have the best shot of a bright future. The Nimipu fought alongside the Americans against other Indian tribes in two battles in September 1858. Soon the Nimipu had immigration problems of their own. When gold was discovered in the headwaters of, Orf- of Orfino Creek in 1860, thousands of miners illegally trespassed into the Nespers Reservation hoping to strike it rich. Though some Nest Purse, notably Lawyer, welcomed the newcomers because they could sell them services, livestock, and food, others mistrusted the miners' intentions and wanted them gone. Lawyer had a plan. For the promise of $50,000, about $1.5 million today, he signed an agreement opening the reservation north of the Clearwater River to whites. Lawyer reasoned that once the mines went bust, the white people would leave. At this time in 1861, the Nespers had still not received any promised funds or services from the 1855 treaty they'd signed six years previously, even though remunerations had been promised within one year. Nespers' loyalties were fracturing. Some bands had already abandoned faith in the Americans' empty promises, while others maintained the belief that continued cooperation was The only way forward, and that the Americans would eventually make good on the treaties. The fifty thousand dollars lawyer had agreed to never. The fifty thousand dollars lawyer had agreed to never material material. The fifty thousand dollars lawyer had agreed to never material materialized, and settlers (laughs) continued to pour on. The $50,000 lawyer had agreed to never... Wow. (laughs) The $50,000 lawyer had agreed to never material... Materialized. The $50,000 lawyer had agreed to never material... Gosh darn it. Never material... Materialized and settlers continued to pour in. Soon, a town called Lewiston, named after Meriwether Lewis, was established. When Lawyer protested, he was promised that no permanent structure would ever be built there, and that the inhabitants would leave after the gold mining was over. The miners continued to come, and the Indian agents, who were sworn by duty to protect the treaty rights of the Nespers, either couldn't or wouldn't stop them. Quote, to attempt to restrain miners would be, to my mind, like attempting to restrain a whirlwind, end quote, once said in 1861. By the summer of 1862, there were nearly 20,000 whites in the Lewiston area, and they had acquired enough political power to demand the nest purse be removed from their, from their home. So what happens next? This leads to the Treaty of 1863 where, by 1863, the area around the Orfino mining camps was truly the Wild West. Violence between miners and Indians was commonplace. Congress decided that something needed to be done. Rather than strictly enforce the No White Person Clause of the Treaty of 1855 and remove all the new settlers from the reservation, They instead decided to draft a new treaty so the areas where settlers were living were no longer a part of the reservation at all. Having the mining camps on government-owned land would allow the American style of law enforcement to take place there. To understand what happened next, it's important to understand the perceived autonomy of each individual band. Through the Nimipu, Nez people, homeland since time immemorial, Individual leaders had always regarded their bands as autonomous. Though they would gather with other Nimipu to trade or socialize, each group considered themselves separate, independent entities, villages unto themselves. Every band was self-sufficient, creating their own clothing and tools and getting their own food from the land. There was no overarching government between all the separate tribes, no faraway kings or sheriffs who imposed laws and collected taxes. The American treaty negotiator, negotiators did not fully respect such a society and continually looked for one, quote, head chief, end quote, capable of speaking on behalf of all Nez Perce. After all, it is easier to reach an agreement with one person than with 56 people. One Nimipu man... Halhal Hotsut, more commonly referred to lawyer, assumed the position of quote-unquote head chief. He was well known to missionaries and fur traders because of his great English and negotiating skills and his eagerness to learn the ways of the foreigners. He was 12 when Lewis and Clark visited his village and had always been fascinated by white people's language and culture. Although he was respected amongst his people, he was not recognized as having the authority to speak on anyone's behalf he was considered as more of a language and culture translator than a spokesperson since the american government had never paid upon since the american government had never paid up on its promises of the 1855 treaty many nemipuu bands were disgruntled reluctant and to hear Many Nimipu bands were disgruntled, reluctant to hear more empty promises. After a few days of deliberation without agreement, thunder eyes declared the Nest nation dissolved. They would be separate people, the quote-unquote treaty group and the quote-unquote non-treaty group. Chief Joseph was so incensed he tore up his copy of the 1855 treaty and his Gospel of Matthew, which Henry Spaulding had given him years previously, before he rode home to Wallowa. When lawyer and other pro-treaty headmen signed the 1863 treaty in, on June 9th of 1863, the U.S. government assumed they had reached an agreement with all Perce. Chief Joseph, Chief Whitebird, and other quote-unquote non-treaty headmen Meanwhile, thought they would not be held to any agreement that they did not actually agree to. In this way, the eighteen sixty three treaty planted the seeds of conflict that would eventually grow to the eighteen seventy seven Nez Perce War. And that is the general line, outline. That is the general outline of everything to be discussed in the raw notes to follow. Все so, было.